0: Good evening and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri
1: and I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Ryan Tate from Tate Animal Training Enterprises.
0: Ryan will be picking who he thinks has asked the best question of the night and they will win a bag of Enduro high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat.
1: Hey Ryan, how are you going?
2: Throws it up a bit there, mate. Guys, sorry, it just it froze up then probably at the most critical time. I tried <laughs> opening my door here to see if I can get stronger Wi-Fi signal <laughs> or something. Um, but hopefully, yeah, it stays good for a bit now. But uh, thanks so much for having me on here.
0: That's right. Actually, we were having this conversation over lunch yesterday with uh, Shane, who was on last week, and we were mucking around. and. Someone told him that if your car remote, the remote for your car doesn't work, if you put it in your mouth, it will enhance the signal. And uh, maybe try that with your motor, I'll, mate. I'll give it a go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shane will be hating on me for that. I'll hear about that tomorrow.
2: Uh, how was your day, mate? What did you get up to today? Yeah, um, I mentioned to you before, I had all the kids come home from school with yeah. chicken pox, which was fun. Um, and then apart from that, I've been uh, training dogs on some new biosecurity targets, so um, some underground pathogens, and uh, working on some rodent and uh, feral animal detection dogs as well. So that um, that took up today, and will take up most of the rest of the week as well.
0: Well, I remember we, we touched on it a bit later. We had a chat the other day talking about what you're doing at the moment, and that's like a dream job for me, um, what you're doing there. and. We'll, we'll dive into it. I'm sure we will, we'll get there. But, mate, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself,
2: please? Yeah, sure. So um, I run an animal training business. We, we specialise mainly in biosecurity and conservation dogs. My background is in actually marine biology. So I used to be a zookeeper. I used to train uh, marine animals at Taronga Zoo. And I still consult with zoos and aquariums around Australia right now. I still uh, – probably about one or two a month, I see. And um, – I met through the zoo industry, I met a lot of police dog handlers and army explosive dog handlers, and I formed a few really good friendships, and I was really inspired by what they were doing, Um, and it kind of sparked a bit of interest in me, you know, 15 years ago or so, um, where suddenly... Training seals and doing seal shows, trying to pick up chicks, seemed um, <laughs> seemed less interesting all of a sudden, and I, I really wanted to pursue and and do something similar or akin to what these guys and girls were doing with the, um, particularly with the explosives dogs. That's what really kind of um, humbled me, and and you know I used to think what I was doing was pretty cool, and then and then when I saw them using their animal training skills and their dogs for, for a higher purpose, something bigger than them. I think that was the part that really resonated with me. Um, and then, yeah, through that world, I, I met Steve Austin, who was doing biosecurity and conservation dogs. Contact, oh. um, yeah, kind of where we are now. Yeah, So mate, we lost you for a sec there after you mentioned Steve Austin. Yeah, so I met Steve when... Um, he was training dogs to find penguins and I was actually looking after the penguins at Taronga zoo. And, uh, he and I hit it off. I did a few courses with him and his wife, Vicki. And, um, yeah, I made some contacts through national parks and through truffle farms with them. And, um, I left the zoo industry in 2015, uh, to exclusively train detection dogs. And that's all I've been doing ever since then. Pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty so cool. it's, it's, um, yeah, every day I pinch myself. You know, I, I really—it's—it's it's probably the only thing I've ever been good at, and—and um, and I, I mean that sincerely. <laughs> like, I don't really have any other good skills. I think it's the only thing I'm good at, and I'm lucky that I enjoy it, and I'm lucky that someone's willing to pay me money to do it. So, well, yeah.
0: well you mentioned there you got a couple of kids. Yep. So I think another skill would have been picking up chicks. You mentioned that earlier. So that might've been a skill as well, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I think tra- training seals and having a few good wingmen um, helped, help that, that process there. So it's, um, yeah, it gives you a little bit of an extra, uh, a bit of credibility when you've got a sea lion on your arm. <laughs> Mate, can, can we have a chat about the sea lion stuff? Yeah. yeah. Like
0: Obviously that's not something that everybody can say, Hey, I've trained a sea lion. Like what's, what, how do they think? What's, um, and what are some takeaways you you learned from them? Uh,
2: from marine animal training, the the most obvious um, sort of parallel is that most of them have incredible food drive. Yeah. Um, so are you guys still hearing me okay? Look at the screen yeah. froze then for a moment. All good. Still good, yeah. Uh, I- incredible food drive and, and are real problem solvers. So uh, for the most part, if you think of like a very very high food drive Malinois or Labrador or something like that, um, you're kind of in the right path. Except that when they get frustrated or when you get something wrong, uh, the consequences of, of a stuff up with a three four hundred kilo animal when they redirect and that you get a frustration <laughs> bite, um, it's it's pretty severe. I've had a few, n- nothing too major, but I've had a few. Uh, I think I'm about to meet Jesus moments. Um, (laughs) The best parts for me really, though, were when I actually started to develop genuine relationships, and that was usually with some of the the smaller, mature female animals um, whose food drive would would fluctuate and you really have to work and incorporate and being cheeky and having fun with them. and that's, I think that got, that sort of stuff got me really excited when I was starting to, I had a bit of freedom to be able to work animals with toy-based rewards or variable rewards instead of just paying everything with food. And um, that got me super excited. And I, I, I loved working off relationships and and, and with, with play in particular, which, um, you know, I think has really set me up well for for what I do now with detection dogs every day. Eff- effectively, we're, we're trying to do something sometimes pretty serious um, and utilize play as a reward. And um, working with sea lions kind of proved me pretty well for that.
0: And they got some pretty serious teeth, right? Yeah, surgery.
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, depending on the species, uh, look, they're all sharp teeth, they've all got incredible um, bite power, jaw strength, uh, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, the speed and the pressure behind a bite um yeah. even through a, a you know a steel cap boot is uh is terrifying.
0: And, and are they more likely like to try and bite you and get you into the water, or is it more so like just to come at you?
2: Both. Yeah, both. Yeah. You'll yeah. you'll get, Yep, yeah, people have been pulled in. I've been grabbed to be pulled into the water. Um I've been there when people have been pulled into the water. And um but it's always like you can you can always understand it really. It's not like, oh shit, where did that come from? Um, It is usually something where you go, yeah, okay, like that wasn't ready for that. Or it's because there's usually pretty clear reasons. It's not, you know, particularly because what we were doing is, you know, our our life was dedicated to their care and to their research and to their training. So you're pretty in tune with them. And uh, any of the incidents I had where I got a little touch up yeah right yeah
0: yeah 100 and you mentioned earlier there that like they're a lot of they're problem
2: solvers yeah i mean you know food runs out in the wild you got to get creative right so yeah. um they have that natural desire to overcome difficulties to think about ways to get to their mates get to the food um overcome beach masters uh so they they really love that challenge they don't um They don't like playing it safe. And I I think, uh, you know, some zookeepers can fall into a trap of, uh, and this goes for most species, they can fall into a trap of keeping everything cushy and keeping life very safe and very predictable and very easy. And what you create is an animal that becomes, you know, neophobic, so scared of anything new. Um, When in actual fact, they're all designed to deal with stress and overcome adversity and difficulty. So, um, when I would train them, I, I'd, I'd like to make things as hard as possible, tricky as possible, physically and mentally challenge them. Um, even if it wasn't something that was going to be used on display, I, I love to get the animals to to really use their brain and and be creative. And I, um, you know, I got to play around with leopard seals and doing free shaping with them, um, and you know, telling them you know, I had a, a female who she, she passed away before I really kind of nutted it out. But um, I had a cue with her where I would say, show me something new. And she would just come up with something random. She'd, you know, she'd spin through the water, or she'd glide, or she'd go and grab something, or she'd swim upside down, or she'd sing to me, or, or make a deep bassy sound from the, from the back of her throat. And then I had a repeat cue. So if I like something, I'd say, repeat it, do it again. And she'd do it again, and then I could put it on cue and say, this is the cue. Now, that's a new behaviour that we just created in in three repetitions. And, uh, you know, and then I had another male leopard seal, Casey, who I could train um, underwater behind acrylic glass, and I could do a whole five, ten-minute training session without any reinforcement because he knew that I was good for the money. So after the session would finish, I'd say, well done. I'd go around, go to the fridge, open up the fridge, and jackpot reward him, you know, and that, that that kind of stuff was was um was unreal. And I had an unreal manager at the time who um who trusted me and the other supervisor to to cautiously but experiment with these animals and and mentally challenge them. And um or, yeah, I really got to do some some unreal hands on learning. And you know I'm 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 back seeing all those same people and working with them literally next week. Um, on other projects too. So it's, um, I wouldn't, I'd be nowhere without that. You know, I'm very uh, thankful and appreciative of all the different mentors I've had along the way um, from the zoo industry and from the dog training industry as well. That's pretty cool, man. Um,
0: just there that with Casey, where you mentioned underwater, so you're on the other side of glass, I'm, I'm assuming. Yep. And so that's all like, well, excuse my arrogance, don't know a lot about sea lions, but I'm assuming that's all physical commands, not so much verbal or? Correct, yeah, yeah. So
2: you can't, like you know, there would be a certain ability to hear through the glass probably for them. Yeah, but all the cues were, were visual cues for that. So most of the stuff that we talk with the sea lions and leopard seals, like you would a lot of working dogs, um, you'd have some kind of visual cue and some kind of verbal cue. But, you know, when, you, when you're talking up to potentially hundreds of cues going through different keepers and trainers, Um, we used to get very, very, very specific about how you ask for certain behaviours. We'd have cue and criteria manuals, laminated books that would say, you know, when you want this behaviour, you ask for it this way um, and the animal must respond like this. And that was really about uh, a safety element. Again, if you, we had a rule, you don't ask for anything twice um if it hasn't been successful because uh you know there's no check change there's no way to correct correct a yeah. sea lion, you know for an incorrect response or to to tell them to knock it off if they start getting gnarly so you have to make sure that you are on a path of success and super clear communication um because you know unlike some of the other marine animals where you can just get up and walk away you can't, and they know that. And I've been pinned in exhibits before. I've been there, and other people have been blocked, and the animals have said, "I don't like the way the session's going. You're not leaving," and that's terrifying. So you want to be, you know, super, super clear. They're saying, and that's probably again set me up for good detection dog training. Is I'm really ridiculously consistent in, in what I ask from my dogs and and what I expect from them and how I'll reinforce that and, and what I'll tolerate. And, you know, I've got six dogs here right now, um, you know, including like on, pop, pop, including, um, this guy here, laying by hey, my side, you know, and um, they can all, you know, effectively do what they want, but I have like major sensitivity to sound and barking's not on,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. and,
2: Uh, And, you know, and the conservation dogs who are working around sensitive wildlife and stuff, they can't bark either. But all of my dogs know when I'm home, you bark once, the fun's over. The dog that barks, it gets separated. And and that's, you know, I don't go and kick them up the ass or anything. It's just a matter of just saying, you're in a pen or in a crate on your own. We don't bark in this household. And I think it's just that super, super clear and consistent communication that was instilled in me from day dot um, that... You know, I don't have a lot of rules, but the rules I have with the dogs, the behaviors that I've trained, the reinforcement <laughs> values, I use, I, like I'm consistent to the point of being crazy. You know, how's that roll into the
0: father role?
2: Like my son, he is he's, he's, he's cheeky and um, he he winds up my wife a lot. Like he'll <laughs> he'll say like you know. I, I don't she'll go, why do you ask your dad for that? He's like, oh, I would never ask dad for that because I just know he's going to say no, but you might give in. You know, like <laughs> he winds her up heaps. Um, and you know, like I, I you know, the, the girls are still young, our twins are only three, and so Jen's you know, always working around town, she doesn't do too many field trips away. Um, so I get the luxury, you know, of, I go away for four or five days at a time and I, I come home and I can be. You know, hands on, uh, all excitement, all go, dad, and I can give them a hundred percent focus. Um, whereas they wear Jen away over the week a little bit more. So I'm not, I'm not putting shit on her for not being consistent. Absolutely tough. Kid. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. what made you go from sea lions to dogs? How'd that all happen? Uh,
2: yeah. So I mean, it was a bit of a perfect storm in the sense that um, I had a. Like in that role, I was the unit supervisor of marine animal department, I had a fantastic team. I, I'd i been to Antarctica and Kangaroo Island and I'd worked in all these different amazing places and I probably just, I ticked off everything that I could have ever possibly wanted to tick off. I, I was so stoked with how that job went and my position came. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I was seeing these guys in the army and the cops and, and all the conservation and biosecurity people um, doing stuff with their dogs. And um, I had a little um, shepherd cross that I was doing a bit of agility work with and loving it. And um, I just, I took some long service leave and I, I dipped my toes in the water. Um, I did a bit of truffle work. I did a bit of private um. Uh, private narcotic detection work as well, Um, got a couple of new dogs. And uh, yeah, I just hit a point where like, I don't really care how much money I make. I had a son um, who that kind of, I guess, what motivated me was I didn't want to play it safe. I wanted to follow my heart. And I thought I I wanted to show my son that, you know, I want to be a part of something where I, I really felt I was contributing in a different way. Whereas at the zoo, I felt like, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd maybe run out of ideas or I sort of, I, I was kind of felt like maybe it was just time for me to move on. And, um, the dog world, uh, you know, like it, it just, once I, I fully committed, once I put two feet in that water, I met some of the most amazing people, lifelong mates and, um, I did a couple of free demos at some dog day out things. I met people from national parks and from biosecurity. And uh, you know, the first gig I got with national parks was a voluntary based job, but they wanted me to, they, they wanted to see if I could handle some of their dogs. And um, I did it and I thought it'd be maybe a summer fling. And I think i got my first three or four days in the field And then I got back from that job and yeah, just the phone didn't stop. You know, Um, I moved out of Sydney, I moved to, you know, regional New South Wales and um, thought I'd get less work and the work just kept growing. And so my team grew, my dogs grew. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, I still pinch myself. I still, you know, I, I, well, I get awkward when I even think about it because I just, I don't know how it all happened. It's just, um, yeah, it's it's uh, a, a lot of um, appropriate skills and, you know, I've done a shitload of courses and study and um, networking and times at dog club and um, volunteer stuff at zoos and aquariums and, like, I've done my time in the trenches, but I guess because I loved it all, it never felt like I was in the trenches you know i loved all the study i did i loved all my volunteer stuff i loved all the dog club stuff um so you know i now look back on it and go i've been doing this for over 20 years now full-time and you know it started as a kid and it's it's never felt like a job really
1: yeah yeah that's, no that's awesome that's
2: amazing man that's really yeah.
1: cool so what's day-to-day for you though like you're saying you know you're booked up full-time you're doing all these things but what is it that you're actually doing day to day?
2: Yeah, sure. It's that's a, it's a good question, and it, it does change a little bit um, from week to week, month to month, season to season, and I'll, I'll explain why. So, our our primary work in terms of our dogs is uh, biosecurity and conservation. So, where that layers down is in terms of the biosecurity, you've got your generic kind of um, we have contracts um, that either put us in different airports or shipping ports to look for a certain list of, of contraband or, or biosecurity matter that, that needs to be checked for and can't get through a certain location. Those gigs can be super regular. We've got a couple of them that are regular at the moment in Port Macquarie. Um, and that's essentially you know a full-time gig for two and a half people within our team at the moment. Uh, then we have biosecurity weeds, like priority weeds that we're working on. And some of them grow in the uh, snowy mountains and are only accessible for about 12 to 16 weeks a year. So those weeds, we wanna completely 100% eradicate. I wanna find every single last one of them. So essentially, as soon as the weather permits, we're up there, we're hitting it as hard as we can. We're running ourselves and the dogs as much as we can. It ends up being about sort of a week on a week off. We'll do a couple of back to back weeks, but effectively week on week off all through summer in the snowy mountains region. Um, There'll also be other targets we might be looking for up there, foxes, cats, um, maybe endangered small mammals as well. Um, And then we we do a lot of, um, what is probably the coolest part of our job, we do a lot of koala detection. Uh, And again, that tends to be a more winter centric kind of job. And so next week and the week after, um, a few of our staff and our koala detection dogs will be working around Port Macquarie and the mid coast, uh, looking for koala scats and or live animals in the trees. And uh, using that to inform councils, uh, environmental consultancies, Uh, national parks and whatnot as to where either the koala corridors are where the hot spots are whether things should be developed or not um it can impact the the route (coughs) of roads and constructions and uh it's part of those preliminary surveys around you know people are going to have homes but koalas do too like environmental studies based on the future future development exactly yeah yeah Yeah, so um i mean it's that's it in a, a very sort of, you know, broad crude sense, um, you know, and then there's other little little niche jobs around, um, you know, other plants or, or in invasive species. Um, you know, sometimes as well we, we will be required, uh, you know, if we're working on islands or in sanctuaries and whatnot, we'll aid in the, you know, whatever we're looking for, whether it be a weed or a... A fox, or a cat, or a rabbit, who will aid in the trapping or the the eradication process through various other means. And and whenever I get people uh, asking me, "Mate, I don't want to do what you do," um, you know the the two pieces of advice I give them is number one, you've got to have a good dog, but number two, you've got to have some other skills that are relevant to that profession. So uh, within my team, I've got people that are absolute plant gurus or they're koala experts or fox trapping experts um, or they have a really good understanding of the outback or certain habitats or biosecurity policy and legislation and so having those supplementary skills um, you know understanding scientific methodology and stuff like that at the moment, for our team, is actually more important than their animal training ability. We've got, you know, between myself, Jen, and and particularly um, Claire, um, we've got a lot of runs on the board with training detection dogs. Um, so we like we really when we're looking to engage subcontractors or new staff, we want we don't necessarily need amazing trainers. We need people who are great dog handlers, but have a really good skill set um Elsewhere that is going to be applicable to to what we're what we're what we're searching for.
0: and I yeah. think I can help you. I'm mediocre with a dog, but I'm really good at knowing all the best drive-throughs for New South Wales. Oh, that's um, good. That's, that's, handy. that's Probably a skill I can help you with, right? Good Everyone good needs
2: drive-through. Oh, well, I it's you're almost there because I've always yeah. said when I'm doing the road trips, I need someone that knows where all the cleanest dunnies are on the highways. So, like yeah. that's drive-throughs, really right? Port Macquarie KFC. Yeah, always
0: <laughs> had a good burger there, mate. <laughs> Very good. Actually, do you want to grab that question? Yeah.
1: While we're talking about your team and like what you're looking for, Karen Higgins has asked, what is your team and how many human and canine?
2: Yeah. So um, in terms of like exactly (laughs) permanent dogs and permanent staff, so um, six full-time staff, six full-time dogs, but um, they're the dogs that, that live here with me. Uh, many of my staff um, have their own dogs that, that do get used occasionally on certain jobs. And then I've got like three amazing subcontractors that I use on a regular basis, all of which have multiple dogs. So, you know, within my network um, that, like, that I'm using every month, there'd be probably, say, 10 handlers and maybe about 20 dogs all up. And a lot of those dogs overlap. And sometimes if it's a really sensitive site or um, getting access is really difficult, like some of the areas we work, for example, will be um, either ongoing mine sites or prospective mine sites. And so the access to these locations, is super, super strict. And there's all sorts of confidentiality. And if we're going to go on looking for things, and they've got to shut down a mine, um, obviously, there's there's millions of dollars at stake. Right. Um, and so instead of me just going, Oh, it'll take me and one dog, three weeks, they go, that's not on. Um, so then you get like your best team of subcontractors want to go right, we're going to hit it with six dogs, and we're going to knock it out in a week. And they go, right, uh, that's, you know, the, the cost of us engaging the subbies is nothing compared to oh, the cost. Costs. Exactly right. For so them. so that's where sometimes those those subbies um, really get me out of hot water and I do the same for them. They get they get jobs like that where, um, you know, the pressure is really on for renewable energies and for the ongoing, you know, grassroots sort of energy sectors to, to lift their game and the dogs are, are being, you know, becoming along with drones, just such a common tool. Whether they're looking for soil contamination, water leaks, or invasive species or protected species, these big companies—they're not doing it through gritted teeth. It's not like we're getting out there and they're going. Mm, we're getting here because we have to. They're all trying to lift their game, you know. That's so right. they want to be doing the best practice. That's so well, they're, they're getting it getting- the-
0: yeah. Sorry, the, uh, just on that, they'd be getting payoffs on their carbon footprint and emissions, right?
2: Well, it depends on what they're doing with the land. And sometimes we, we've gone on to, to environments that you know would potentially be listed for you know whatever kind of development or whatever kind of use. And then they send in a bunch of ecos and dog handlers and whatnot, and then they work out that, hey, this is an amazing offset area. It's got all these amazing species in it. And then they end up pumping a lot of money into preserving that habitat and, yeah, looking at things like offset schemes or, or um, yeah, I mean, that's not, I don't want to speak out of school because it's not my area of expertise, but I know there has been sites that have been listed for potential development, but then after the surveys, they go, wow, it's actually, um, you know, this land is too important for a variety of different flora and fauna species to develop for any purposes. So, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of, like, a lot of really good news stories that come out of it for us. That um, you know, at a, at a state and at a federal level, uh, they they cop a hard time no matter what they do. Uh, but we've been there on the ground when they're trying to implement these things and trying to actually look for ways to have progress in capital works, but not compromise the environment. Or in you know, in certain cases, actually trying to go right out what can we do in the peripheries to make this area better so when we leave when we finish the highway upgrade or whatever it is we've actually made the landscape better and that might mean buying up surrounding farms treeing up areas making better underpasses connecting habitat better and uh you know sometimes we really can um progress change and and improve the environment and um you know we we did some surveys just here in town um you know Shipping away at them over, over seven years, doing surveys in, in a couple of really key areas that were absolutely listed for the arterial road upgrades and housing developments, shopping malls, golf clubs, and through years and years and years of surveys of going on, oh, better check it again, better check it again. This area has been locked up and it's now, um, you know, there's areas that have been bought by national parks, that have been bought by th- philanthropists and other organisations that because the surveys have shown no, this is super important for koalas and all these tree species and quolls and um, bandicoots that these areas that would have been golf courses and highways and whatnot and now these these thriving nature reserves that we get to go back and see and i, I show my kids and say you know before you were born this was supposed to be you know all bulldozed and be nothing but you know, pubs and shopping centres and, um, you know, take them for a walk through there and point out koalas and, you know, Regent Bowerbirds and, and stuff like that. So, you know, it's 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 cool to be part of that process and and, and not, you know, we don't get – no one in our team is cynical, you know. It's easier to be cynical from the outside and go, ah, everything's getting bulldozed, this is a shit show. But when you actually see what's happening on the ground, there are some good stories out there.
0: Uh, absolutely. And while you're talking about, like, how big your team is there, I suppose. That would help with a lot of your odour imprint as well. So you're not constantly um, training different target odours and trying to exactly imprint right. dogs, right? Yeah, like that's, 100%, that's a, mate. That's a, that's a kind of be a couple of days in itself.
2: Yeah, and I mean, what we tend to do now, um, we have a couple of dogs on, uh, like we say fur dogs, so live animal dogs or fur. Um, and so we just get them to just just alert any fur. I don't care what it is, if it's in the environment, tell me about it, because then what I can do is I can deduce what you're what you're alerting to. I can use binoculars, I can use thermal imaging cameras, or whatever it is. Um, and then those dogs as well, we also get them to do um, predator scats because we get a lot of work with with quals, with wild dogs, with feral cats. Um, and uh, foxes obviously as well. And so whether you're looking for the live animal, you wanna find the den, you wanna find the warren, you wanna find whatever it is, um, or you wanna find evidence of them. If those dogs will say, I'll show you where all the fur is and I'll show you where, where the scats are, um, then you've got like, it's a really, it's actually quite an easy concept to teach the dog. And it's kind of natural, particularly for the spaniels for, for, and for male dogs, like the mallee here, like, you know, predator scats. He's just going to check it out anyway. You mark and you reward that. And the dog goes, okay, I'll, I'll show you every fox turd along the way here. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then they learn very, very quickly. I'm not interested in kangaroos. I'm not interested in, uh, you know, possums. And then they just go, right, I hone in on on the ferals that are in this area. And, um, you know, and it, that concept is... Like, it's pretty much as I'm only training the dogs two things, predators and fur, predator poo and fur, but the applications of that are super, super broad. So we have those generalist type dogs, which are, you know, they're flat chat all the time. And then our dogs that are working on invasive plants and, um, you know, some of the koala dogs and the dogs working on contaminated soil and things like that. Um, they're very, very specific dogs. So it's the opposite end of the spectrum to them. It's basically ignore everything and just tell me that one friggin' thing because that's really important. So uh, yeah, super generalist dogs and then and then very, very specific dogs.
0: Do you find um, that that's a specific dogs, like when you mark and you reward, whether it be food or a ball, yep. right? That's that's something we can give. But those dogs that are chasing what you refer to as fur, do you find it a bit harder to mark those because they could find the chase, more thrilling 100%, 100%. than. Yeah, so, so, how do you
2: go about rewarding that? Um, so, it's, you know, this is where, and I was thinking about it prior when I was talking to Jen prior to coming on the podcast. Um, and we're talking about, you know, Kelpies and working dogs and whatnot, and how a the dogs that I choose to be those fur dogs um, are, are much more natural hunters. And so, all I have to do to them is basically work on stopping them and just going, yeah. The instinct is there to find, right? So you just got to stop on flush. As soon as that animal moves, you hear it move, you see it move, Handbrake. whatever it be, handbrakes, automatic on, automatic stop on flush. And I drill it into those dogs from day dot. I usually get two puppies at a time and whichever one is like, I mean, I hate using these kind of terms, but whichever one is smarter, like a bit more of a thinking dog, I'll go, yeah, that'll be my targeted species dog. And whichever one is just more goey, more hunty, more drivey, more fearless and just doesn't care about getting knocked up, okay, that'll be my fur dog. Because I know they'll run into blackberries and brambles and flush rabbits out. They'll they'll go down a, a fox den, you know, they'll, they'll jump on a ship in the middle of the night with me in the middle of a harbour and look for rats and they'll just go for it. They're not going, no, yeah, what's in it for me? They're going... I just friggin love this job, you know. And so, it's like you know, you, you're not always going to want that kind of dog, right? Sometimes you're going to want that sensitive dog that really thinks and is very polite and is analytical and goes, you know, I really want that ball. I've got a very high reward drive. Um, particularly the dogs that we're working on the soil at the moment, they need to have very, very high reward drive because the task they're doing is quite boring, you know, whereas a dogs, once once you get a good dog and you say, mate, your dog is to go and flush bunnies for me, they go jam your tennis ball up your butt, Ryan, you know, like flushing bunnies. That's about as good as life gets. And so all I really have to do to them is just say, all right, we don't chase birds, we don't chase kangaroos, but those rabbits, I'm going to praise you for getting as close as possible and then stopping at the last minute. Same with the fox, same with the cat, um, even the same with the koala a lot of the dogs that we've trained to find koalas that that know that they're not just looking for the pellet but they're looking for the live animal and um i'm sure some of my my followers that have known the company for a long time would um would shudder at this thought but when the dogs find the koalas up the tree and they stop sit and they look at me they're not looking at me going i love koalas they're looking at me <laughs> yeah. going get the rifle you know that's what they're thinking in the dog's yeah, head right. is there a hunt they've been bred for this for for 700 years, you know, this sort of process of, of hunting. But the beauty of all those little spaniels that we use is their prey drives pretty low to to pull them up, to get them to stop, to get them to not bite, to get them to not bark. Actually, it's not that hard. It's, it's very, and a lot of them instinctively do it. As soon as they see something move, their instinct is just to, you know, it's like you see good German short head pointer pups, you know, they go and point instinctively It's you know, five, six weeks of age. Good springers will, you know, and cockers will will hunt like crazy. And then when that bird springs or when that rabbit springs, they they pause, they think about it. If you give them a chance to run and grab, (laughs) for sure they'll go for it. I've seen I've seen that happen. Um, but yeah, to pull them up is is nowhere near as hard as it as it might be for a terrier, you know, or or, you know, um, yeah, or something like a sighthound.
0: Yeah. Would it, would it be fair to say, like someone like a Springer, for example, they're looking up naturally because they're waiting for that thing to fall down. Because they're looking Often. for those shadows, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And and and, you and get that you s- yeah. And you see some of them. Some of them are naturally more birdy than others as well. So they'll naturally have that look up instinct, and others will be a bit more sort of looking for that ground flush. Um, and you just kind of work to their strengths, really. And I mean that's kind of. The beauty of where our our business has been for a while is that you know, some people invest all this time in in one dog and go, I've got this dog and it must find this thing in this environment. And it's like, yeah, anything's possible, but you know, you're going to be working against the tide the whole time. Whereas we've got enough work on and enough people in our network that I can get a dog and I can I can work it for six months or 12 months and go, yeah, it's just, you know, it's okay. But man, it would be a really good, you know, weed dog, or it'd be a really good explosives dog, or or whatever it might be, and then I can um, channel that dog's path based on its personality. And that's, you know, what I say to everyone is like, every dog can learn scent detection, hundred percent. Every dog can learn it, but not every dog can be a detector dog, and it's, you know, and that's an important thing to. To acknowledge, and even within our team, as the dogs have grown, we've narrowed down the jobs which certain dogs do. And just go, you know what? I'm not going to do that with him anymore. He's like, yes, he can, but we've got better dogs, and he I want to give be. my clients the absolute ducks nuts. And I want to make sure that, that the dogs are excelling and loving it. And you know, and then we just niche down on on what that dog excels at. And uh, you know, it's it's you know, we're super lucky. Hmm.
1: And on from that, Deb Eden's asked, where do you source your dogs from and how do you assess them for your work? But you've sort of spoken about how you assess them individually for what job, but is there anything they need to meet before you take them on?
2: Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, usually 90% of the time I'm looking at litters and I will check out the bitch and if I can check out the dog. Um, I want very bold dogs most of the time, like super bold, in-your-face, happy-go-lucky dogs. Um, I love like ball and retrieving instincts. Um, so that, it's not like a, a cutoff if the dog just has higher food drive, but if it, if the parents naturally have high ball drive, I'll go for that. Um, and yeah, that that willingness to just engage their nose and and just go for it. Um, I have, yeah, like I've assessed a lot of, um, you know, 10 to 10 month old to sort of three year old dogs. And like none have ever worked out ideal for me. You know, it's always been, I've got, and this is, you know, I always talk to my mates about these being unicorns, you know, when someone goes, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could just get one-year-old dogs that are gone through all the teething and all the rubbish and ready to go? I'm like, they're unicorns, mate, they're unicorns. But um, an unreal breeder um, and, and some really, really good trainers from down south um, I was chatting to last week and just saying how after losing a dog last year, I'm, I've got my eyes out for something pretty special at the moment. And they, they mentioned this 18-month-old bitch to me and, like, she just sounds like a dream dog and I'm just like, don't get your hopes up, Ryan. And all my mates are going, you're not, you're not looking for another unicorn, are you? I'm like, just this dog sounds like it. But <laughs> usually, yeah, I just, I just go for puppies now. I just get eight-week-old puppies from breeders that I know have robust, strong drivey dogs that, um, you know, will produce puppies that are a nice little blank canvas. Uh, Jen's, you know, incredibly passionate about puppy development. So she basically, you know, makes them bomb proof around the kids, around Bunnings, around the shops, takes them everywhere, puts the ball drive into them. I usually, I usually do the crate training. Um, uh, I can, I can nod off pretty quickly. So I I usually go in the spare room and do the crate training at night. um, And Yeah, Jen does everything else. And then, um, you know, once they're chasing a ball and loving their food and and happy with everything, with their socialisation, then I'm imprinting them.
0: And and how about um, the beginning of uh, Deb's question? What about sourcing them? How do you go about sourcing?
2: Yeah, um, look, I mean, I've got a pretty good network of different breeders that I've used in Australia. And uh, I kind of know now, like everyone has their own little language and little words that they use. And I sort of now spend enough time with different Spaniels and and labs and cockers from from different lines. And I sort of know what those different lines and breeders are producing. And so there's probably half a dozen different breeders, different Spaniel breeders in Australia that I I look at and um, based on what the the papers say, I have a pretty good idea of what that's going to produce and go, that's likely to produce something that's gonna be like this for me. And then, um, you know, and they, they know what I'm kind of after too. So if yeah. I say to them, hey, I, I want a ball to the wall, mental off the chart drive dog. Um, Brett from Bodrum Gun Dogs in WA, um, I've got two of his dogs and uh, he produces at Working Line Cockers. And the last one I said, mate, oh, I need a maniac. I need a dog that's going to, you know, get into planes with me in the middle of the night, jump into the choppers, not think about it, get up in two in the morning and just launch into the car and say, let's get him. And um, boy, did he give me that. I've got this little black cocker, scout. It does not matter where you are, what time of day, what's going on, she's up for it. She does not think, it's just you know, she will jump on my shoulders and just hit it and let's go. We had a job last week. Uh, She's only two now. And I had a massive job last week, super high profile site right in the middle of Sydney. And I was like, I'm just taking this dog. I, I had no idea. I forgot. I'd never taken her to Sydney. I walked her through Haymarket. I walked her through the cross out on a Friday night, sleeping up on a balcony in a high rise building, getting into elevators, working into into airports, never took a backward step, not once, you know, just owning it did not care, you know, and buskers and random dogs all through the city. And, uh, you know, there was a nearly a punch up in town, she just didn't (laughs) care. Nothing, nothing fazed her, you know, whereas, um, you know, like some of my weed dogs. Um, they're real edgy at night, you know, they don't work at night. They, they look for weeds in the day in the tops of beautiful mountains. Right. So if, if I took them to that setting, they would crumble, no doubt. They would, I had no doubt they'd be shitting themselves. I could get them through it, but, um, you know, it, it, they would not thrive. She got to that and just went, bring it on. I want more, more chaos, more, you know, just the more we threw it, she's like, yeah, this is, this is the best um so yeah that's kind of you know and brett knew that's what i wanted he's like that's what you're going to get mate." he's like this this dog from five weeks of age was you know like growling the other dogs off the teat and stealing toys and you know bashing everyone up i'm like that's the puppy for this job so, yeah
0: <laughs> and sound environmentals that'd be something that's really important to you right like because
2: you don't know where you're going to be exactly mate and um i mean again i think you know jen does a pretty bloody good job if we get eight week old puppies of putting that into them most spaniels um, deal very, very well with um, with sound, just with the nature of gun dogs. Um, most gun dog breeders will will fire off a few rounds above their head when they're puppies, anyway, and just kind of from day dot that sort of you know when you think about it, if you're proofing them for for gunshot, um, you know from that early age that most of the sound sort of stuff is going to be okay. So then it's just a matter of like you know getting in and out of strange cars, lifts you know, see-through staircases, that sort of stuff um, that can throw them. But again, if I'm usually raising two dogs at a time, if one's a little bit more sensitive or say that's a dog that's going to work in national parks and, and one dog's a maniac, and so that's going to be the dog that does all that sort of urban stuff.
0: Actually, it's funny you mentioned there see, uh, see-through staircases. People don't understand how hard that actually throws a dog, right?
2: Yeah, very, very. And I mean, yeah, never, but, some of us would never think of that. No, and I mean, to me, no, throws me,
1: yeah. let alone a dog. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And I think for me, so many of those things I've known for 20 years that I like it's like one of the first things I do. I'm walking around the streets looking for grates um, with stormwater drains and puppies and just feeding them on top of it. So it's been a long time since I've had a dog freak out at something like that because I'm. You know, it's just so hell bent on making sure it's not a problem that we're always kind of kind of dealing with that that sort of stuff um, head on. But yes, yeah, certainly, I know you know my mates that have worked in the army and, and have had to acquire you know just through, through the nature of their programs acquire mature dogs that are you know going to be ready to go in six to eight weeks and and how many dogs they they have to sack for <laughs> six, they just. You know, they won't go into a gymnasium, shiny floors. Or they yeah. won't go into a shopping centre, polished floors or, uh, yeah, see through stairs, elevators, escalators, um, you know. And I think as well, um, I, I give them a hard time, but, you know, I say to people, like, I don't think mouths and Springer's are that smart. Like, personally, I don't think they're that smart. I think they're just driven. They love their rewards. They're driven and willing they don't overthink that sort of stuff. And that's, you know, quite why I like working with them because I can see, you know, I remember I was taking one, a dog into the ABC twice. This happened to me at different ABC studios, once with a working line shepherd and and once with a um, a Springer and the glass doors and the glass elevators and the, and the chaos. Just you, I saw as I was approaching, uh, that dog's not going to deal with it that well. That dog's not going to deal with it that well. I just did a Yui, walked away, charged up with the ball, got him psyched, and then threw the ball through the front door. And they're just like, it is on like Donkey Kong. And then that drive kind of overrides their intelligence, you know, or their fear responses. And they just sort of go, right, I, the game's on. And it's, you know, it's, I, I often liken it to young boys looking at cleavage, you know, like regardless of how big the bloke is next to the woman um and even like butt cracks you know plumbers cracks and whatnot like it it overtakes any common sense that you have like there's certain things that we're just so hardwired to look at and stare at for too long um that i kind of lean into that for those dogs like this dog's bordering on crazy obsessed for the ball i'm going to utilize that to get them through uh you know very scary experiences
0: I could take that somewhere else, but I won't. I won't go <laughs> yeah. with that. Uh, okay. And we mentioned you mentioned your um your Springer's um males, Labs, mate. What breed of dog like what what breed of dog suits you, or, or are there breeds that don't suit as well?
2: Yeah. So, uh, and this is like a, it in certain circles it, it can become a bone of contention, and it, it needn't be because the the truth is, um, you know, there's. No perfect dog, right? There's no one dog that can do it all. There's, but there's going to be dogs that are uh, much, much more comfortable with with having loss after loss after loss or, or no genuine wins, right? And for me, the more intelligent and sensitive breed varieties, I think struggle with without those high volume wins. So a lot of what I'm looking for, well, everything that I'm looking for really is very, very, very unlikely to find the actual thing, right? And yes, that can be remedied by, you know, setting up training aids and whatnot, but it's not quite as good as the real thing. So, you know, some of your, like your border collies, for example, if you're working on a job where you're going to get lots of real wins, and the dog's going to get a reward. And it's an, you know, it's a fairly straightforward target, let's say a really productive truffle farm. Um, Let's say you know, we've done a lot of carcass work, where we're looking for carcasses in certain areas, border collies, love it, excel at it do really, really well, super clear criteria, enough reinforcement to keep them engaged in the process. But they need the wins. They need the wins, right? Yeah. And they need, a, 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 you know, and I think they need a, a really good handler, you know, and I don't think in my experience <laughs> they don't transfer through multiple handlers as readily well as a gun dog would, right? Much the same as the Kelpies too, right? So that the Kelpies, you know, and Aussie Shepherds, for one person can be the most phenomenal, dynamic, diverse, loyal dog in the world. But then you throw them into a team environment and say, I want you to do all these complex things for all these different people in all these complex environments. And they're not wired like that. And they just sort of go, well, I don't don't really like that person that much. Whereas the Spaniel and the Labrador will go, I like the job. The job's great. And I don't care who's holding on to the end of the lead because I love my job and off we go. And that's what they should be like, really. Uh, A good detection dog should love the task and not be disheartened by a loss. I always say to people, the Spaniels think every day at work is the best day of their life. If they don't find anything, it's the best day of their life. But when they find something, it's just a bonus. It's just a cherry on top. They get the ball like, oh my God, I searched all day and I got a tennis ball. And they're just going, how freaking good is that? (laughs) Whereas I found with my Aussie Shepherd, not this mouth, but my older one, um, you know, with the things that I've imprinted in them, you know, if, the, if they didn't get a win within 10 minutes or half an hour, they'd be like, you know, almost looking like I was about to belt them. Like, no, mate, you're doing great. Like, oh, I haven't found the real thing yet. And they're so smart. that They know when I've hid the, the targets out for them and they kind of do a half ass indication on that because they know that I just placed it there for them and they're just too friggin' smart. So um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I kind of go, you know, well, what was this dog bred for? This dog was bred to run all day with lots of other dogs looking for small things um, with a bunch of different hunters behind them. Like that's pretty bloody compatible to what I want to do. And I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't run my Cocker Spaniel in a sheep herding trial, you know, so it's like you know, kind of by the same logic. I go, I wouldn't run a Border Collie professionally. Having said that, we've got Border Collies in our team. We've got two in our team. You know, <laughs> So I'm contradicting myself here. But I'm saying I use that kind of logic. And I go, we use those two Border Collies for very specific purposes where we go, they're, they're killing it. They love it. They know what it is. We, we don't have to hammer them hard. It's like a day here and there. And they're brilliant at it. And we know that those two border collies are gonna love it and they're gonna smash it, but the volume of work they do doesn't amount to the volume of work the Spaniels do. Yeah,
0: and yeah. and it's actually interesting that you mentioned there about um, the dogs working for, and it doesn't matter who holds the lead, because we actually, we're actually talking about that this morning here. So my Dutch Shepherd, for example, I was on a heap of work with that dog. And whenever I go away, it, no respect for Natalie. Yeah. Right. And then I was really busy for a period there, and Shane was doing a lot of work with him and a lot of scent detection. And then I noticed that he'd roost around. And he'd kind of take me for granted a bit. Yeah. But then when Shane was on holidays last week, and I was working him every day, Shane rocks up and he's like, "Who are you?" Yeah, yeah. But whoever had that ball was it was like the remote to run this yeah. dog. Yeah. And it was really funny. Yeah. Like we had the conversation. Like, so is this dog man's best friend or ball's best friend?
2: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and sometimes you want to put that that ball drive above people for the sake of productivity within a company and giving that dog a good, a good life, you know, and I saw it happen, you know, in some agencies and um, other organisations and even in the zoo world where you would get amazing trainers who perhaps were, um, you know, threatened by some of their colleagues or wanted to... Uh, in some way, shape or form elevate themselves. And they would work or drive an animal so much and lean into them so much and so much into that, that relationship development and that bond, knowing full well that just by chipping away at it every day, that that animal going to start to turn their nose up at other people. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, shit, oh, Oh, he won't work without me here. Oh, he didn't do any bag checks without me. Oh, she <laughs> won't move out without me there. And, um, you know, and I, I think that's a sign of a, of a pretty shitty trainer, to be it's honest. Like like, right? Yeah. And, and I like when I left the zoo, I wanted to know that for the welfare of those animals, as well as the team of keepers that I loved. That none of that was going on, you know. That I never want an animal that's like only going to work for me. It's like, oh, it's it's Ryan's dog. Like no one else can handle him. That's horseshit. That means I'm a bad trainer. If I can't pass those skills over to my team, I, have, I run a team of professional trainers and handlers. I should be able to pass over the dogs to most of the people. Now, not everyone handles my Mal, um, but I've got three wonderful handlers that handle him, but. He's an eight-year-old dog, like there is a certain point where it just becomes about uh, you know, do I have everyone trained on everything? No. Whereas the young dogs that are coming up through the ranks, they're learning to work for every single person that's here right now. So um, yeah, I, I think it's, you know, when your organization is growing for the the welfare of the dogs working there professionally, you're gonna you need more than one person to be able to, to be able to handle it well. But Having said um, that, around the house, he's definitely a pain in the ass for Jen when I'm not here, and I, I reckon it's because um, the kids feed him and let him in, and you know, <laughs> and just throw yeah. food on the ground, and, and like he's a, he works unbelievably well, but he is 100% a house pet too, you know, and that's his drive is so good that um, he can go from sleeping on the couch to a hard day's work, no worries. Um, but it does mean sometimes, Renald. I'll hear Jen go, Come on, mate, inside. And then he's like, Oi, sit inside, Raff." And he's like, you know, running around with the kids. They're throwing a ball for him <laughs> or feeding him scrambled eggs off their breakfast or whatever. So, you know, again, you can kind of understand why he might discriminate a little bit there. But at work, Um, he's an honest, wonderful dog.
0: You you actually touched on two more things. One was usability within your team with your dogs, which I think you you touched on that really well. And the other one I was going to ask was, um, integration with your family. Like you've just mentioned the male there. How about the rest of your team They integrate a lot more professional with your dogs?
2: It's a little bit more professional and it depends on the individual dog and their job. So, um, What we try and say to people, and and it can look kind of boring and a bit mechanical around the farm here for the fully established working dogs, and and that's by design. So they, most of them work five to seven days on and then five to seven days off. Those five to seven days on, they're working anywhere between 10 and 30 kilometres a day in hard terrain as are their handlers. So when they get home, I need them to rest up. I need them to put on weight. I need them to calm down. I need them to clear their head. So they will usually be kenneled for most of the day with a compatible dog that they they like and that they want to snuggle with and whatnot. And then they'll be let out, you know, four to five times a day, for anywhere from 10 minutes to half an hour for a groom, a cuddle, check over, bit you know, run down to the dam for a quick swim and then put them away again. And like, it's kind of boring and a bit like, yeah, come on out, have a run, go to the toilet. The kennels are big enough for them. You know, they're, they're massive kennels, but it's quiet. Got music on, I've got cameras on everyone, motion sensors. Everything's fully controlled. It's, it's a bit boring everyone's got a Kong or a chew toy and that's about it. But mate, when you go into the field, you're eating at the dinner table with the hand You can sleep in the swag. You can sleep on the end of the bed. You go for swims every day, you're running 30Ks, your handlers grooming you for an hour at the end of each day. The enriched life that they have that week in work is insane. It's off the chart. So it's like they get the most unbelievable dog experience for five to seven days straight, and then they come home, have a quiet week. And, you know, I've, I often say to people, you know, what do you think the dog really wants here? It's like the life they have here or just sitting in a backyard and going to the dog park every day. It's, like, yeah. it's a no-brainer, right? These, these dogs have the most amazing adventures. And, and the reason that it's sort of five to seven on and five to seven off is because they just lose condition because they run so hard. So you literally need them to, to bulk up, put on weight, you know, let their fur sort of recover. If they've been working above the tree line, the snowy region, um, you know, the, the sunlight can be a bit harsh on their body. So we literally just, they would work every day of the week if we let them, but you start to see fur gets a bit scrappy. They get a little bit too lean. And so we go, no, nah, we want them to just to bulk up and rest and then, you know, go at it again a week later. Jeez, your dog's
0: getting some genetic fulfillment,
2: mate. Oh, mate, no, it's, you know, like, you look at the uh, the canine predatory sequence, and uh, you know you look at what what my dogs do for work, and they basically you know they run all day trying to acquire odor. They make odor. They hone in on the scent cone. They find a spot. They alert to it, and then what I do is I throw the tennis ball or a ball on a string out, so they get the chase. They nail it, and then when they nail it, I play you know, play tug with them. I roll around in the dirt. I have a full fight with them. I'll jump in the rivers, whatever. i go, you know, my reward event is just off the chart when they make a real find in the bush. And then I feed them, I groom them. And it's like they've gone on a full on hunt. You know, they've been working all day. They've found it. It's run. They've caught it. They've killed it. They have fought for it. They've eaten it. And then they've groomed and they've rested and they've slept together, you know, in the swag or in the hotel or or wherever we're staying so yeah the fulfillment like you just said you know the fulfillment they get outside the house is is through the roof and um yeah and, and by design then you've got to, you can't have the ying without the yang you've got to be calm when you're at home you've got to put on weight absolutely yeah. Man, i can
0: go on a massive arc of everything we got here but we've got a few questions
2: um if you
0: want to get we'll get into some of those yeah
1: yeah samantha alfred's asked. she said firstly thanks for taking the time to do the q a um her question is and this
0: is awesome My
1: eyes aren't even working now. How would you recommend someone getting started with scent detection?
2: Um, Look, I think it can be really, really, really easy. It can start off something so simple. And I do this with my puppies every day. I hold them by the collar. I wave their favourite reward under their nose, whether it be a ball, a toy or a treat. I throw it. Usually I start off in short length grass and I throw it, say, two, three metres away. i let it settle for a couple of seconds. Then i let the puppy go, right? The dog runs off. It uses its nose. Once the treat or the toy is still, it uses its nose to find it, grab it and celebrate. That's literally where I start. From that moment, I make the throw longer, the grass longer, the environment more complicated. And I'm getting the dog to hone in their skills on scent detection with their favourite reward. It's just a game for the dog, but what they don't realise is they're they're learning how to work scent cones, how to look for disturbances in the environment. And um, it's a a wonderful cross-training exercise that I can do even whilst I'm imprinting an odour every day. So the imprinting part is obviously a little more technical, but essentially I take the dog into a very, very, very boring, quiet place. Um, I've got my, you know, a couple of training areas at home. There's nothing else in the room. There's usually a jar or a brick or a tube or a PVC pipe on the ground with the target odor in it. As soon as the dog looks at it, sniffs at it, investigates it, I mark it usually by saying yes, and then I reward the dog and I repeat that process. You bring those two exercises together eventually, and like it's it's not that complicated. It's it's honestly the hardest part is about trying to find you know the right dog for the job and to desensitize the dog to all the environmental distractions. I think you'll, you'll find uh, most professional trainers will say it's it's really it's about the environment, about proofing the dog to the environment, the multitude of different environments to repeat that process. Hundred percent, like. And, and that process you talked about
0: there, like you're actually just teaching that dog to hunt, right? Yeah, it's already and you're already picking something with that um, that genetic uh, that DNA to want to do that,
2: and you're just enhancing that and fast tracking it along. Yeah, absolutely. And most, I was chatting to a, a, a dear colleague who um, who suddenly lost a dog uh, just yesterday, actually. Um like she had an aneurysm, and you know, we're talking about getting him a. a new young dog. And he's he's a really, really experienced handler and done a bit of training himself. And I said, mate, these like these young well-bred bitches we get, the genetics these days are so good that by 10, 11 months, like they're ready to, they're ready to work. Their, their body's not physically there, but you can start using them here and there. They can start going on field trips. They can do five minutes here and there because they're just wired so well that, yeah, like you just said, if you just kind of harness that and redirect it, you fast track it. And the, with the exception of that crazy cocker or all the <laughs> bitches I've had, by 10, 11 months of age, I'm like, tick, they're finished. I'm just waiting for their bodies to fully form before I start wa- working. <laughs> <them>. <laughs> what
0: about um, dogs you get that are over the top? You ever get some that are just over the top? Well, I'll give you an example. I've got my, one of my mouths here. Like, it's like she looks for a tunnel. Yeah, like, just, everything's out here, and like, yeah, it's like it's just over the top. How do you, do you yeah. just put those guys away and let them mature a bit, or give them a little bit less to do? Or
2: yeah, look, I I actually try and do a bit of like uh, drive reduction. I actively do drive reduction, and um, I remember speaking to like um, I went and checked out Lisa Carter's yep. Malinois pre, and it's funny, it's funny saying that. Um, Lisa actually bred this dog here, massive drive. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I remember Lisa saying, and I was pretty green when I went and checked those dogs out, that his toy drive was just so ludicrous and off the chart mm. that it was actually better. You get better clarity to just work him on food and even have like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. This is a conversation probably 10 years old but that, that, you know, just those medium food rewards actually was getting clarity and better response from a dog. And my sort of naive brain at the time was like, oh, you know, you're missing out on, you know, I, are you missing out? I didn't question it because I saw the results, right? The dog won the Easter show and every open event there ever bloody was. Um, but I remember just thinking, oh God, like, you know, why wouldn't you use the toy? But yeah, it was, it was too much. So, yeah. 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 So, um, I, the, the one of the um, soil dogs that I'm working with at the moment, her ball drive can often be too much that she just comes screaming out of the gates and just alerts the first tube she sees because she just wants that frigging ball so much. Um, so, we've got a rule with her is that we bring her out for 10 minutes, 10 minutes before a session and let her burn off a bit of steam with socializing. And then I calm her down with a little bit of food. I get a little bit of tucker into her belly, have a have she's had a little bit of fun. And then she's like, okay, all right, now I can think. And she actually searches better. So I actually end up doing the opposite of, of punching drive into a dog. And I go, actually, I'm gonna dial this dog back because its willingness and its drive is actually getting in the way of progress. And I, you know, I probably have Lisa to thank for that. Cause I looked at that dog. She threw something like. Nine or 10 toys in the backyard, had him in plots and then released him. I shit you not, the dog picked up every single toy and did not let one go. He had all nine stacked <laughs> in his mouth and was just running around wide. And I was like, man, that's some toy drive. And uh, I remember thinking, like, yeah, you, like that's kind of hard to work with at times.
0: Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah. It's like, ah, if I, if I had hair sometimes, yeah, I, you'd be pulling I wouldn't have patches oh, missing. But um, I've actually used exactly what you said done, done there, and it's it's amazing how sometimes we have to knock them back a peg too, right? Because yeah. otherwise, if they're too high, there's no clarity.
2: No, exactly, and I mean I've seen this in in some of the service dogs and the labbies with like the uh, the desire to to use food, um, you know, is really good because we know labs have good food drive, but sometimes it just whips them up into a silly state, and often you know, the better thing to do is just use a little bit of gentle guidance. It's not yank and crank. It's just about just using the lead to guide them to to where you want them to be, what positioning you want them to be in instead of luring them with food and getting this, you know, IPO performance heel out of a Labrador that you want to be a seeing eye dog. You're just like, hey, just, you know, maybe we just use a lead to just gently guide them over this way that we might get a more natural, smooth, Um, Appropriate response from the dog. So yeah, sometimes just taking it back and being as simple as possible and and forgetting what we know about building drive, um, it can be the way to go with, particularly with lifestyle kind of skills. You know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. the top one. Yeah.
1: Um, Deb Eden's asked, "What feed and supplements do you use? What does their mealtime look like? Is it individual feeding or communal? And then on from that, I'd like to ask, does that change from when they're at work to at home?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, it changes from work to home. Um, Jen's sister is a nutritionist and um, I have an unreal zoo nutritionist, um, Michelle Shaw, who um, I've engaged her specifically for my mao when he was young um, to formulate a diet for him. Um, And so like essentially all our dogs have a, portion of kibble in their diet, um, because it's obviously so, so, so handy when you're in remote locations that I need them all to be able to, to have, you know, a predominant kibble diet. Um, all of my dogs get greens, fish, rabbit, kangaroo, um, as often as possible, as often as it's available. Um, and, uh, yeah, in terms of supplements, like, um, there's some fish oil, there's, um, I'm a big fan of psyllium husk for dogs when they've, um, uh, like, uh, particularly I find with, with Rafa, um, a bit of psyllium husk in his food when he's, uh, like, you know, perhaps going through a little bit of a sensitive phase, it can help sort of make things coagulate. Um, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of about it. They, they run pretty well on that. Um, we're, we're trying to constantly, evolve in in what we learn and, and what we do. And uh, Jen's definitely got a lot more expertise in that area than I do. But what she's really, you know, the, the research that she's getting at the moment, um, and certainly in the results and the dog's poos that we're looking at is, you know, the, the closer to the source we can get, and the more practical we can make it, um, you know, the better the dogs are going to be. And then when you work them hard, and you need those nutrient dense meals that you, you get those nutrient dense meals from your kibbles and your high quality dog food products to, to bulk them up. So you, you know, we do often need time to like, you just got to smash this dog with two or three feeds a day of high protein, you know, high quality dog food. Um, and yeah, and then, and then balance it out. So it, yeah, it, it actually, it fluctuates more than you'd think. we got a whiteboard here. Um, yeah, in the in the tack room next to the dog runs. And the staff basically, you know, we edit it almost every day, and they take a photo and they send it to the group and go, that's what we're doing tomorrow for these dogs based upon their workload, whether they're getting food rewards and things like that. So um, everyone is is almost always individually fed for those reasons, because they are working dogs. Almost none of the dogs are ever on restricted food. They can usually like eat as much as they want um, because of you know the the volume of work that they do and the cases that they're running. Um, and everyone is capable of having a scatter feed of kibble, um, which we do as like an enrichment activity with the with the whole pack together. Um, you know, we might let them all out and 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 scatter some some good quality kibble around the yard and just. I'll always just keep a loose eye on them um but yeah they can do that but i wouldn't do it with super high value food um yeah. i don't think anyone would really nail each other but i thought you know dogs. Well, I take the chance right exactly right you know like yeah. i don't i don't need to it's it's not a i don't need to prove anything it's it's just not worth the risk for me um with any of these dogs and, and their relationships they all love each other they all respect each other so well the pack that i've got here at the moment are just amazing. And, um, you know, I just, yeah, the only thing I think they can really reliably do is that scatter feed of the kibble and anything else would, you know, we'd start to get some lip curling and some, some you know, uh, crappy behavior. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I, and I shouldn't <laughs> say crappy, exactly, normal dog behavior. Yeah. And, um, you know, like Rafa, my male, he, um, like we've done so much counter conditioning with him when he's got bones and stuff that uh, like if he sees a human approach him when he's got a bone, stands up and wags his tail, right? But he will growl at shadows and cars and <laughs> birds and stuff when he's got a bone. He's, he's instinctively guarding his bones, you know? And, um, you know, he knows how to guard articles and whatnot on cue. Um, but, you know, it just shows like when he sees and goes, oh, that's someone I know, he stands, leaves his bone, and approaches them going, Hey, you're gonna give me a treat or tell me I'm a good boy for not killing you. Um, but in his mind, really at his core, he's like, you know, if a bad guy snuck out of the shadows to seal my bone, I'm gonna rip their friggin' throat out, you know. So um, yeah, I never take that for granted. Oh, that's
1: awesome. Um, <laughs> one more question here from a different Deb, Deb Elegant. Um, she's asked, what sort of priority do quolls have in your conservation work? We have had a number of quoll sightings and had national parks and wildlife services out to try and catch some footage, but to no, but that's it. I... My eyes are going funny. Um, it's
0: no avail. To no so... avail. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, we live in regional New South Wales. Thanks, guys.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um... Quolls were a funny one. So going back uh, probably like four or five years ago, there was a massive push for a whole heap of quoll surveys. Um, and then the guidelines around how we classify where they are changed a year or two later. And basically the, the ask of the market fell out of that. There was no real need for for quoll surveys um, at an official level. They're sort of now seen as a bit of a a bonus bit of intel if we're surveying an area and we can verify there was qual scats in there at the moment. It's just kind of like a bit of a bonus. Uh, and truth be told, you know, I don't think I've found many qual scats in the last two years. It might just be where I've been working. Um, I haven't seen that many. Uh, there are certain other like hot spots that I know that I'll, I'll be going to in about three or four weeks. So I would expect to find them. And they're a funny little creature that um, I was working with this ecologist and we've got this like running theory that um, quolls do what we call a latrine. So they, they tend to poo in the same location um, frequently. That's right. And, um, and, but we would say they'd uh, like around this mid North coast area, they always like to poo with a view. So like, Poo, like up high overlooking a body of water. And like ever since he's a psychologist, Nick said to me, he's like, don't you reckon they always like taking a dump overlooking a body of water? All coal <laughs> latrines I've found now, they're all like, these epic lookouts. I'm like, yeah, they're just they're having, a, scenery having their morning, out. yeah, having their morning coffee and backing <laughs> one out, just overlooking their uh, their body of water. So yeah, but honestly, I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen that many in the last probably two years. But yeah, prior to that, I was I was getting a lot of hits around the um the mid coast region on on those bodies of water, and they're they're you know considered to be a pretty widespread species. Yeah, cool.
0: actually, while you are talking about backing it out, Deb also asked about. How do you pull the dogs up at the flush
2: stage? I do a lot of work on long lines, a lot of work with toys, uh, with pigeons, with chickens. And um, I essentially, I, I teach the stop usually on my balcony or or, or back tied um, with just me. And then I very slowly start to layer in. Um, so a, a toy with fur on it and, um, you know, I'm getting the dog to move left and right on the front deck or, or back tied, Move left and right, and then I go stop. Reward the dog. Move the dog left and right, and I might just place the fur toy on the ground. And you know, a fur toy to a young gun dog, they go oh shit, I want that. And I go stop. The dog stops, and I release them to the toy. I don't release them to the toy every single time. But sometimes I do because I want the dog on the edge, thinking willie won't he, willie won't he, and um, and that. Kind of creates that same sort of edginess that a real kangaroo or a real rabbit will. If you never let them get the the bumpers or the toys at home, they just sort of go, Oh, that exercise is easy. And the first time they flush a bunny, they just go, Hang on, this is not that exciting. Oh, well, this is very different um, to the toy, and they just go after it. Um, So, but what I start to do is I make the bumper more exciting, it moves faster. It, it moves closer to the dog, it changes, it might have fresh fur on it. I've got remote controlled cars that I can put foxtails off the tail of the RC cars. I've got birds, I've got sheep, I used to have trained <laughs> pigeons for it. And uh, like I'll have them in release boxes and stuff like that. So as the dog's running around, it pops up, the dog's on a long line, I say stop. If the dog doesn't stop, I apply a bit of pressure. As soon as the dog complies, they can either keep searching or they might get reinforced for it. Usually just the act of going back to work again, like your kelpies is like, you stop, the reward is you keep working. Um, and and that's very much the same with the, with the, a lot of the gun dogs. So if you just pull up when I say you do, you can get back to work quickly.
0: You really have to build an addiction in your dogs, right? You really have to have them gambling that, hey, 100%. they're, they're going to get to their reward. Yeah. And the, the, I suppose the reward has to outweigh you have to pay more than,
2: not, than withdrawals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I've seen it before where people have done these exercises, you know, way too militant and the dogs aren't getting enough real wins. And then, you know, when they try and call them off a kangaroo, the dog's like, jam it. That's, I've <laughs> never seen anything this exciting before, you know, and, and they just they go for the roo. Um, and, you know, to the point, like, it's not... And I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not not uh, talking out of my butt here. But when I raise my dogs for those kind of scenarios, because like I say, intensity equals rewards, and you know, the harder I'm pushing you, the more likely I'm going to reward you. That the harder the situation, the better their responses are, almost. And it's like Raff when he does his bite work. If I if he's holding a tennis ball or playing tug and I say leave, and it's just like a casual game of tug, like he lets go, it's fine. It's it's reliable. When he's on a suit with someone that's like swinging him around and fighting him and doing the full the full scene, and I say leave or out, he spits them out. Like he, it's the best one he ever does. And it's the same with the gun dogs. You know, when they flush that rabbit right under their nose, like their butt leaves a hole in the ground, you know, because we teach them that, you know, the more challenging it gets, the more fun it gets, the more likely the re- rewards are going to come. And if, you know if they occasionally get ripped off that's okay because it's that, that's that gambling thing where there's like wow I didn't win that time oh, I had a miss you know they didn't let me go on you know grab the koala or grab whatever it is like ah well you know tomorrow he might so yeah
0: and you've mentioned RAF there a couple of times do you want to give a plug to the other four-legged members yeah of your
2: yeah absolutely so um in the team right now in the backyard I've got uh, the next oldest dog is uh, Connor, who's an eight year old working line English Springer Spaniel. He's trained on alligator weed, hawkweed, and parthenium weed. Uh, then we've got Sally, who's a eight year old working line cocker spaniel. That it's my, <laughs> that was just my melon while then taking my headphones out of my ears. You see him? He's just been like, yeah. leaning into me the whole time. Um, Sally finds a rare underground orchid, and she also finds hawkweed and then we have dash who is a very sensitive and sweet working line english springer spaniel who finds parthenium weed koala scats and rats as well she's the only dog i have that transfers readily between plants and animals that's because she is one of those more sensitive dogs that really works for the ball and the handler um her reward drive is through the roof Um, And she's not that hunty. She doesn't really think about the animal. When she finds rats, she's thinking about the odor and the ball. She doesn't want to grab a rat. But the next dog on the list, Scout, when she's out there hunting, she's a fur dog. She she wants them. She would love to grab the rat, grab the mouse, grab the bunny, whatever it is. But she knows she's got to be steady, steady to shot, steady for investigations and whatnot. And she's a, yeah, two-year-old working line Cocker Spaniel. And yeah, I can, you know, she's the one I took into the city last week. Uh, And then I have um, Alice, who's a nine-month-old working line English Springer Spaniel from South Australia. Um, Yeah, reward drive through the roof, probably. And I'd hate to upset any of the other breeders. Probably the best puppy I've ever had. Um, Just... So well-rounded. If I withhold the ball for like two seconds, she's like, okay, he's not giving it to me. Back to work. Search, 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 search. If I call her, she sprints to me. If I throw the ball she sends out for it, like her life depends on it, and she delivers it straight back to me just as fast. For a nine-month-old dog, and I mean, and I'm not saying she's the best dog I've ever had, but the best puppy I've ever had virtually came crate train with ball drive and food drive. I was like, oh my gosh, how nice are you? You know, just <laughs> if they were all like that, I'd just be, uh, you know, I'd be thinking on the man. But, uh, you know, it seems like always I get one puppy that's really easy and then the next and I'm just like, how good are we? We're killing it. And then the next <laughs> time I'm like, shit, it's trash in the house. It's escaping. It's, you know, in the neighbor's. paddock. Have we ever done this before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That was the Cocker Spaniel, man. Like I told Brett I wanted a handful. I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> man, she stripped silicon out of windows. She ripped up, like, concrete joiners. She ate things. She had to get... Her stomach pumped like three times. She would attack the Malinois. She was a nutcase, you know. But, um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, and then all my subbies and stuff. We've got, you know, these wonderful border collies. There's a Brittany Spaniel in there. There's Working Labs. There's other Springers. Um, There's lots of wonderful, wonderful dogs in a list, too too wide to list, Um, and all with their own, you know, little bits of perfection that we go, that job just suits that dog. There's no weak links in the team. Um, Everyone's got their strengths and, you know, there's always a different job where like that, you know, that job is for that dog. They're going to be perfect at it and I'll always have a backup. Um, So, yeah, which is just lovely for the dogs and for the handlers.
0: Talking about your job, have you got a like a most memorable or one that's like uh, most of a best achievement for you?
2: Think yeah, so. for sure. I mean, it's it's a, that one's a bit of a no brainer for me. Um, I was, uh, so when my daughters were born, it was in the middle of the uh, 2019, 2020 um, summer bushfires. And um, they were super premature. Um, Jen nearly died during their birth. Oh, wow. And, um, and my daughters were, were, were both really, really, really unwell. And um, anyway, when they were in hospital, the bushfires got really, like really, really intense uh, to a point where um, like my son and I were stuck here at home on the roof, you know, getting, cleaning embers off the roof of our house. And um, uh, Jen was stuck at the hospital. There's no way of getting to them. And then uh, the fires ripped through um, critical koala habitat, right right near home. And an area that basically, you know, was responsible for uh, the reason we moved to Port Macquarie and I'd worked closely with National Parks and the Koala Hospital in this very specific uh, tremendous block of land and um, when I saw the fires rip through there, I, I sent out a, uh, an email to a, a couple of key stakeholders and I said, look, this is my situation that I'm in right now with Jan and the girls um, and they were moving back and forth between Newcastle and Port Macquarie with the different specialists and whatnot and I said, but you know, if I've got time in amongst my days, I'm, I'd be willing to come out and help find koalas um, on the fringes of the burnt areas or look for burnt koalas. because so I knew that's what they do whenever there's big bushfires up here because the koalas are so important in this region. And, um, and they said, mate, whenever you can fit in, you just let us know. You just come out and, uh, and just squeeze it in. We, we, you know, appreciate your expertise and, and your dogs. Um so yeah, the very next day I went out full fire suit, um, worked through an area and uh got a couple of easy wins, found a couple of koalas out in like um pretty scorched area. So it's pretty easy to find a koala in a in a in a scorched habitat. And then we started to work into some areas that hadn't yet burnt but were about to be threatened. And I met up with a group of about 20 people from different organizations and um a lot of people that I hadn't worked with yet. And we just got into our first bit of green bush, and we knew that was about to burn like that afternoon. And um, and Taylor ran out, and she Taylor passed away last year. She was this was the Royal Agricultural Society Hero Dog of the Year. She's won a um, a whole heap of awards, and uh, yeah, she died of a, a of a heart tumor last year. But um, Sorry, neither, yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, but anyway, she she was hunting around, and she ran up to this big big uke, sat on one side eyeballed me. And I was just about to pay her because she she never lied. So I knew there had to be something there. And then she ran around, sat to the other side of the tree and looked at me. And I was like, okay. So I, I paid her. And then everyone's going, what was that about? I was like, I don't know. I'll send her in again and go, show me. And she runs back to the tree, sits, alerts to one side, then spins around, goes the other side of the tree, sits and alerts again. Two very distinct indications. And I said to a few people, I was like, ah, no. I'm going to sound like I'm full of it here, but I think she's telling me there's a mum and a joey up in that tree. And, I, like, I swear I could feel people's eyes rolling. Maybe they weren't, but I thought they were like, yeah, yeah whatever, like, the first time they'd worked with me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they stood back, grabbed the binos, and, like, bam, there's mum. Shit, and there's a joey on the other side of the tree, you know. And uh, they got rescued. Yeah, they, they, like, did burn that arvo, and we, we found them again later on. They survived. They ended up at the koala hospital um rehab released all that kind of stuff you know but um super intense moment for me for all reasons like with the family and the kids and the yeah. fires and my properties being threatened and uh you know and I, I like i wasn't being paid for any of that work during that time i didn't take any money i didn't do any press or anything like that for the first two months of doing it um i was just chipping away when i could and then um one day, someone said, "Oh, you got to speak to the local news channel." And I'm like, ah, "I don't really want to. I just like this is my sort of little thing that I'm just doing when I can, and just trying to help out." And then, uh, yeah, I did one news interview, and then like a hundred million views online later for you know for the story. And that's when when Bear, the other dog from yeah, from Queensland, was doing the same job as well. And We all got a whole heap of press and a whole heap of work out of that. But you know, the first two months of just kind of doing it under the radar and voluntary and just you know, in amongst hospital visits. Um, super special. You know, it brings a tear to my eye occasion when I think about those days. And, you know, I worked around some properties around um, Tari and Tononi where like I was working right through Christmas around there. Families, you know, like little kids living in tents and, uh, you know, we're working around looking for koalas and seeing the families and the devastation that all these little families went through in these communities that didn't have home insurance and didn't have uh, early warning systems in place. And, you know, like most of us, no one knew how bad those fires were going to be. So, yeah, for, for a variety of different reasons, that job's just um, burnt into my soul, excuse the pun. But, um, yeah, and I'll, I'll never forget that time and all, all the different people that I worked with and, and that little dog and those fines.
0: Uh, it sounds like a pretty special moment. Under I mean, some yeah. pretty stressful situations as well. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Nah. Mate, thanks for sharing that, mate. Um, it's probably come to that time of the night. We really appreciate your time today or this evening, mate. Was there a question that stood out for you? Uh, and they will win a bag of Enduro high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat.
2: Mate, I think it's it's poignant that um, we're asked about nutrition and about food with working dogs. You know, I think it's a. Um, so I think it was a Deb that asked that. Um, yeah,
0: Deb yeah. Eden. They so got a good yeah. memory
2: too, mate. Yeah, sometimes um yeah i i think it's always good we we um you know we can easily overlook that and i think it's really important not to um assume that what works for one dog is going to work for the other whether it be volume of food or number of feeds per day or types of food um i think that's a space where um just like we try and take with animal training to not just go, yeah, I know it all. It's always going to be this for Kelpies, and it's always going to be this for Malinois. That um, treat each dog as an individual, and and their workload and whatnot should should dictate their diet. I think. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, um, Deb, we've got we've got your details, but um, congratulations, and um, Ryan, you get one as well for oh, being the <laughs> guest.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Enduro.
1: <laughs> one last question, as always, though. Would you rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks?
0: This is really Uh, interesting because he's such an
2: environmentalist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, like, I don't know, like, it's weird, but some part of me just, like, would love the idea of just Booting a small horse, like just <laughs> like a footy, you know. I just feel like <laughs> it would just launch off the foot, like unicorns uh, making twenty
0: little unicorns.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. You know, whereas a duck, I feel like, man, you're in for a long haul, and swinging into that beak would suck. I just think, yeah, just. I don't know. Someone said like the same through the same thing I and mean, you're like with toddlers. Like, wouldn't you just love to run in the room and just start bashing toddlers? And like, it just sounds so inappropriate. But I'm like, I, I kind of get that with the small horses. You know? <laughs> get them back your
0: own for those early morning wake ups.
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that, mate, love it. That actually puts a lot of thought into that. Yeah. I, like, I actually yeah. like that. That's cool. Yeah. Mate, thank you very much for your time tonight. Now yeah, you've got a very busy schedule there. Um, so no thanks for um, for giving us your time. Very thanks much
1: appreciated.
0: Yeah. Uh, to all our listeners uh, watching live, thanks for getting on. We had a stack there. Uh, to everyone listening back, thank you for your time. And please remember, we learn every day. The day we stop learning is a sad day for all of us. Thank you. Thanks, thank you mate. Have a good night.
2: You too.